All right, folks. Um, we're going to pick up uh, with the next verse in our study through Second Peter. It's Second Peter chapter two, verse one. You'll find that we'll address it here in just a moment. I'm going to go ahead and and start um, in one of my heroes in the faith. I've got a lot of them, but this is one of the ones who's really his writings have really uh, formulated my opinion on so many things. Arthur W. Pink. He castigated the false prophets of his day and those who would harbor them by inspiring the church to do differently. When he wrote these words, he said, to turn away may involve a real cross. Your motives will be misconstrued, your words perverted, and your actions misinterpreted. (coughs) The sharp arrows of false reports will be directed against you. You'll be called proud and self-righteous because you refuse to fellowship empty professors. More and more you'll be made to painfully realize that the path which leads unto eternal life is narrow and that few there are who find it. May the Lord be pleased to grant to each of us the hearing ear and obedient heart. Take heed what you hear and read. There's a warning there from a great man of God that isn't scripture, but it's a good and wise thing. And what he clearly says is, is that we need to be, and we're going to begin with that as believers. We have to be very careful. We have to be careful what we read. We have to be careful what we adhere to, what we allow into our minds and our hearts. Because there are people in this world that are very good at convincing. And it doesn't mean they're holy. We can like them. We We can feel drawn to them. It doesn't make it right. There's but one standard and we need to find and cling to that standard. Look, churches like ours must assume their rightful place on the front lines of a battle against false teaching. More than anything else, that's why we gather. We gather to affirm that which is affirmable by Scripture and to deny those things that simply put are denied by Scripture. We can imagine that some things are kind of cloudy and shady and maybe the lines that separate them out are dotted and not solid. But the very simple truth is this, is that these things are, are clearly forbidden by Scripture. And that the faults will show themselves every time. The, the truth is, is that when the faults show themselves, what's really going on is that, um, is that those around them are ignoring what is obviously true. Obviously true. We, we need look no farther than... than Famous people with television ministries who have denied the truth in their pulpit, and then we discover that the truth has been denied in their lives also. Understanding, of course, that, that when we lift up the morality of God, the, the universal and unerring morality of God, we understand that it's a standard that all of us fail to live up to. All of us are on a track in which we will. We will pledge our faith and trust in God and spend the rest of our lives repenting of those very lies that we've given to Him. Oftentimes doing that. We realize that. But we are required to battle, nonetheless. If gospel-believing and practicing churches do not defend the truth, proclaim it loudly and readily, if we do not stand up for it in our associations and sadly lose friends because of it, then we're turning back, turning our backs on precious truth. Because what's more important is the truth than even the people around us. The most important issue is truth. 
to keep the people around us and give them no truth is to lead them astray also. God called the church to be a guiding light of truth that points the way to the cross. And not some kind of feel-good factory that makes people ecstatic to be there, but never leads them beyond the door. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I believe that anything is a definition of the neglect of the great salvation. It is to, ne- to neglect the gospel. In like manner, the Apostle Peter reveals the true nature of his epistle. That's what's amazing about this. Is that Peter's going to preach for an entire chapter, essentially. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, we're really going to find out what he's really talking about. Like, like John and like Paul, Peter warred against false apostles, false prophets, and false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 1, Peter writes... But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And he says what? There will be. It's not a maybe. It's not a we hope it doesn't happen. He says to the church, there will be false teachers. Be, be, be serious about your faith. Be sober in your practice of it. Because you're not doing this cheered on. You're doing this preyed upon. There are going to be leaders to come in your life who want you to fail. Who want you to lead, lead you along a primrose path that you just love and adore. And it feels so right. But the Bible denies it. And don't fall for it. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now we can take we can take some uh, some pleasure in knowing that for those who are false, destruction comes swiftly. And if we look up back over the course of church history, we'll find countless teachers whose ends have come swiftly and destructively. There's no doubt about that. Just in our collective memory, we can see those. For when the, the, the destruction came, it was obviously from God. And it was a terrifying destruction. Cut to the bone by disease. Destroyed. Once strong and virile, now destroyed by the wrath of God. We understand that there is a, a just end for those. But we must backtrack through that verse and understand exactly what we suffer from. I won't be able to finish all of this today. I'll do the best I can. But I can't leave out the idea of destructive heresies. They come armed with heresy. They deny the truth of the Bible. The doctrinal truth of the scripture. Deny it. Always replacing it with something that to be honest with you they are cheered on for saying. People wanted to hear that. And so they twist and they turn and they shake and they, and they deny the scriptures so that men and women will hear it and, and come back. And come back. They're crowd pleasers and people pleasers. But then he's so very clear. He said they don't just end with our doctrines. They attack the master also. They attack Christ himself. It's not enough just to eliminate uncomfortable doctrines. That in the end we eliminate the deity himself. There are those who would deny the deity of Christ. In, in a very church somehow imply he is 
He is less than God himself. Shocking, but true, nonetheless. Now look, let's just do, go as far as we can. Peter begins this verse by connecting the false prophets of the Old Testament with the false teachers attempting to corrupt and destroy the church. Active in Peter's time. He saw the church as something that would be attacked. Peter's words for false teachers is pseudo-didaskalos. Pseudo-didaskalos. Now, pseudo, we're, we're pretty, we understand that word. Even in, That word's the same in English. Pseudo means to be false, right, or fake. We, we've heard it so, so often with things like the pseudepigrapha, which are the false writings, or the false, false autographs of the church. False writings. Pseudo is false. Didaskalos means at its heart teacher. But don't think, don't think Kyle McGee, teacher. Um, it could apply there, but and anyone who knows Kyle's class, it probably does apply, Kyle, to your class. Because your class is always, as is mine, as is Brother Brian's, hybrid school and, and a church and state, right? Always in denial of the way some people would interpret the gospel. We stick our tongues out at you collectively, those people. Um, always like that. We're always, we're always doing moral education, aren't we? Because at the heart of didasclosy is the fact that teachers are always moral instructors. You don't just teach algebra. If you do, you teach algebra and you teach, you teach the Christian faith and Christian morality along the way. That they are not. And so this idea is that the essence of teaching is always moral instruction. So if they are pseudo-teachers of moral instruction, then the only, the only conclusion that we can draw is, is they're teaching bad morality. They're teaching bad morality. In the end... Remember, that word moral, just simply not a bad word, a very deep and understandable and biblical word. God has always done what God does, and that brings order to chaos. My life without Christ is chaotic. My life with Christ now has potential for order. I was once my own God before, and now I am underneath the God who would come in and say that this is wrong and this is right, and lead me to do the right. Teaching with a moral imperative is what the didaskalos is. And when we teach without moral imperative, this is what we receive. Teaching, the teaching of, of these teachers is corrupted in its holiness and obedience to God's order and discipline for the church and the individual. Now, we, we know that from, from the definition that we can glean from just that word. But I told you before that 2 Peter chapter 2 and the book of Jude track so wonderfully with each other. So we've got another source within Scripture with which to compare what we see in Peter with what we see somewhere else. Jude in Jude 4, verse 4 of Jude. He says that for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds, it's right there together. What have we done? They have corrupted, they've corrupted the church by perverting the idea of grace, of liberty in God, by, by attaching that to somehow the way, somehow, some way that God can now affirm your perversion. God can take your the sensual nature of humanity and say it's okay that this is practiced here. After all, what do people want? What do people want more than anything else in the church? Truth, I hope. Life, eternal, 
My joy would be in that. But the reality is that a lot of people come to church wanting the church to say that they are okay the way they are. That you don't have to change anything. Because most of us would then refer, excuse me, revert back to the idea that it's up, to, it's up to me to change. It's up to me to change somehow. I've got to try to find some way to be better. We understand that the gospel denies that at all. That you have no ability to be a better by yourself. You have no ability to change anything about you. You are powerless. As powerless as I was. As powerless as any lost sinner could ever be. And that only God is the agent of change in the life of a person. Only God can end the, uh, the, the, the slavery of humanity to the flesh. Only God can do that. Only God is capable The new gospel that's preached by the false teachers tolerates perversion and denies Christ. Look, the church is not an amoral entity accepting all actions as equally beneficial. They're not. The church never says that every single thing that every person does is all right or okay or helps. It doesn't. It says the opposite. The church strives for the holiness of God. The church wants to make us holy because the church is in line with the scriptures. This is how we maintain our legitimacy in the face of a dying world. It's exactly what Paul says. He told us in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. We are supposed to be striving for a, a Pauline-defined genuineness. So the world can look at us and say, this one's real. Because this one follows God's word and this one's false. Because they've denied it. False teachers preach against this because it's financially profitable. Let's never get beyond that. Let's never go one step beyond that. The, the ultimate corruption in this is a de desire for money and stability. It's financially profitable. Since the truth was first espoused by faithful men, hateful and ignorant prophets of profit. It's my pun, I apologize. Have done everything that they can do to corrupt the church and denigrate the saving truth of Christ Jesus. All they care about is money. Jeremiah told us in Jeremiah 6.13. For from the least to the greatest of them. Everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest. Everyone deals falsely. Greedy for unjust gain. If there's anything that, that is the theme. Of, of the corruption in 21st century American Christianity. Is a desire for unjust gain. Men and women. Making themselves rich. Off the gospel. Rich. Purchasing planes. What in the world. Does a preacher of the gospel need a plane for? Or mansions. Or $5,000 tennis shoes. What do they need these things for? No reason. None at all. Whether it's the greedy televangelist or the Haitian voodoo shaman, the motivation is always real profit for false prophecy. A willingness to modify, to deny, or to sacrifice saving truth in order to get rich or merely get by. 
The full intention of Peter all along has been to affirm the power of the gospel to destroy the hold of sin over the life of the believer. In the end, we preach the gospel because it turns people loose from sin. Because it saves lives eternally and everlastingly. That's why we preach the gospel. That's why Peter writes. That's why Peter died. Because the world hates the real gospel. Because they don't want to be turned loose from their sin. They want to covet their sin. They want to be defined by their sin. They want to make money off their sin. To give people freedom from the flesh that's beyond the experience of the lost sinner. I, look, I'll be quite blunt with you. I understand why the lost would seek this out. They, they have not just feel a bondage from their sin. They've embraced it as definition. This is who I am. I don't want to change this. To change this is to deny myself. They'll even say to deny the way God made me. They'll even say those horrific things. They don't believe they can be set free. And I'll be quite blunt with you. There's not a soul in this room right now who's saved by the grace of God that believed at all you could be set free either. In fact, you didn't just not believe you could be set free. You didn't believe in freedom. You didn't even know what it was. Or what it would do for you. You probably thought it was as much your enemy as you believe the devil is your enemy now. You were terrified of that freedom. So I, I feel sorry for these people. But look what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. I mean, there's one thing for Peter's ministry. It's this. He said, He himself bore our sins in his tree, in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. If there's one thing, die to sin, live to righteousness. Why does God save us so we can die to sin and live to righteousness? Why did God save us so I can turn my back on the way I've been my entire life and live a radically different life? Live in a way that I'm not ashamed of. So much of our lives is defined by shame over what we've done. And the gospel sets us free from shame. I don't have to be that old way anymore. I don't have to live in the gutter. I don't have to be trash anymore. And you haven't lived until you've looked in your mirror and you've said to yourself, you are trash. And that God saves pieces of trash just like me. Turns me free. Turns me loose. Sets me free. Christ suffered and died to set men and women free. To strike the bonds of slavery to the sinful flesh. And let loose men and women to serve the living God with all of their might. False prophets would shackle again the church. Gospel preachers want to turn you, want to turn you loose and set you free. And false prophets want to keep you in bondage. You're profitable in bondage. You'll give your money so they'll feel better, so you can feel better. That's what they want. Cause the lost to languish in darkness forever by preaching the devil's lies because they pay better than the truth does. The false prophets made a financial decision and it's just too, it's just, it's just too lucrative to turn your back on the truth. The source of this infamy is darkness itself. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times. Some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to, to deceitful spirits. And teachings of demons. The, truth, the church tests spirits. Because some are deceitful demons. Whose purpose it is to destroy the church. Called by Christ's name. Understand, I will tell you. That the motive is always financial. And it is. Always financial. They're always finding just like the, the, the Haitian voodoo priest that we met. Who practiced a, a demonic religion because he could make money off of it. 
But at the heart is the demon, nonetheless. And I'm telling you this much. These, these prophets of profit can have mega churches, but the pulpit is ruled by a demon. Not because I say, because Paul said it to Timothy. Destruction comes in the form of morally lax and irrelevant preaching. It affirms what the world practices and denies the power of God to destroy the dominion of the flesh over its people. It doesn't say you can be liberated from bondage to the flesh. It says you don't have to be. You have no reason to be. That God is fine with you the way you are. Come here and live the way you want to. And we'll tell you it's okay. And we'll build up that lie around you to the point that you can no longer tell truths from lies. You no longer have any power at all. That kind of preaching is treasonous toward our crucified Savior. And it must be stopped. I'm here to tell you it's not something we will, we will just go along with. We will war against it from this pulpit. And we will war against it in our lives because we have to. In the very same way that someone took kindness on you and shared with you the truth of the gospel so that you could be saved. We will have the same mercy on others. The duty of the church is to remain faithful to Christ and to His revealed will until the Lord returns. We're going to be faithful. The Gospel of John discusses this topic in Revelation 10, 10-12. He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His, of His Christ have come. For the accusers of our brother, brothers have been, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Look, no one believes that the church will truly fail in its mission to go into all the world. And proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. As Christ commands in Mark 16 verse 15. We know this will succeed. Without a doubt it succeeds. But what the body of Christ must understand. Is that the church's great enemy. Has come down with tremendous wrath. And terrible fury. Because the time allotted his destructive actions. Draws to a close. He knows he is almost out of time. So he, so he dispatches his demons and he sends out his false prophets and he props up his straw men and he does this. Why? So that he can corrupt the church. In every way possible, he will never give up his battle. He is to be conquered. He will not surrender. For this reason, a dutiful, careful, sober and conscientious church is required. A sharp, clear, and committed body of Christ that's ready for the challenges of the times. We've got to get ready. I mean, we've got to spend our time reading and studying and confronting. We've got to know what we're talking about. We don't have the luxury of just being offended anymore. 
We have to be able to respond to what the world says. And it's not just on me, it's not just on your, on your pastors. Don't sick us on them. Here's the reality. You are going to be the mouthpiece that God is going to require to go forth in this world and defend the gospel message. You, right there. We'll preach it and we'll prepare and we'll equip as hard as we can. But in the end, you are going to be required to go out and defend what is right. We're all soldiers. We're going to be aware of the snares and corruptions of the devil. We're going to be dedicated to reaching the nations with the gospel message. This is the standard that the church strives to achieve. Being ready to go forth and defend the gospel. We only get there if the message that we preach and the one that we receive, especially when we're in our homes, the truth that we choose to dine upon privately is in fact verifiable, authentic truth. And what I'm going to tell you is this, is that means that some of us in this room right now might have to go home and look at our bookshelves and burn some books. Go home and, and, and examine what we read, what we listen to, and stop listening to that trash. When I got here 13 years ago, I had to purge some books. I didn't burn them, I threw them in the garbage can. Because I couldn't imagine they were in a Baptist church. I couldn't imagine they were in a gospel-believing church. I saw them, and I was shocked. And they went in the garbage. I wouldn't even give them away. I wouldn't give somebody this trash. So we may have to do that, folks. We have to go home and say, say, look, I've been listening to her forever because she makes me feel good. I'm here to tell you there's some things that make us feel good that are just dead wrong. Some that make us feel all right. And you know what? We've got no business listening to them. Folks who know computers, we used to have a, a term years and years ago. long time ago. When they first came, it's called garbage in, garbage out. I'm afraid there are a lot of Christians... They're getting a lot of garbage out of their lives because they're putting a lot of garbage into their lives. Just because we've listened to it our whole lives, it just does not make it right, folks. Just because we read it our whole lives, it doesn't make it right. Not at all. Albert Moeller commented that churches cannot remain faithful if it tolerates false teachers and leave their teachings uncorrected and unconfronted. That's what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to correct things and confront some things. I expect school kids in the classroom to be, to be confronting and correcting faults that they even receive from their teachers. Don't go along with anything. I tell you this much. If you start going along, you'll go along your whole life. If you don't stand up right now, you'll never have the strength to stand up. It's best that they learn to stand up right now. Take their blows now that when they're 50 years old not have the courage to do it. Or 60 or 70 years old. Be cowards for the faith. The Apostle John, always confronting false teachers and false apostles in his personal ministry writings, commands us in 1 John 4, 1, to do, to do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. John said then there are many false prophets. You can't believe everything you read. You can't believe everything you listen to. Don't do it. Don't be a fool. The test is straightforward. If these teachers do not teach the truth, if the preachers do not preach the truth, then they are false. This is not a trial by ability. We can appreciate that which does not represent gospel truth because it's couched in charisma. There's one problem that, that I think so much of the Christian faith has. There's a lot of guys out there that are just really great guys. And they're really great at speaking. And you understand why somebody want to hang out with them and drink a cup of coffee and all those kinds of things. But the reality is they're not preaching the truth. 
People like him for them. If he won for preaching, they'd be a movie star or a great salesman. They have personal charisma and they do not possess gospel truth. And so much of the church has been built in the 21st century, especially on the personal charisma of a handful of leaders. And we'd have never bought that in the private sector, but in the church we've couched it in some kind of form of holiness. It's not true. It's what they say that matters, always matters. Or likability, men and women like things that agree with them and hate those messages that disagree with their presuppositions. The problem we have is that we will flock to places that we agree with. And there won't be gospel agreements. There will be personal agreements. My daddy told me, and we go. My mama or my grandmother told me, and we go. Or I need this to be true, and I go. We go in, thinking ahead of time, this is what it's got to say, or I'm not going to stay. We don't compare it to the Bible. We don't even think about the Bible. It's all about what I already believe about everything. It's why we'll have churches that practice what they practice. It's why we'll have churches that do what they do. That's why. The real temptation stems from the human tendency to approve of that which we find pleasing on a guttural and instinctive level. Not in terms of verifiable truth. As Christ pointed out to the church in Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets dressed up as something you wanted to hear to start with. But inside they're a wolf. Human beings are fooled by the sheep's clothing of nice speech, pleasant attitudes, and a bunch of popular tribe. Occasionally churches do not want to hear the truth that is best, purest, and most accurate, but choose for themselves. What Paul describes in 2 Timothy 4, 3 saying, For the time is coming when people will not, will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The church's accumulation is the terrifying aspect of this message. The willingness to quickly despise the blood-bought gospel and to turn to motives that tell us we are okay moves the body. That desire, that ultimate, is very personal, folks. I've told you before. It is so easy in this world to say that something is wrong till your kid does it. To your family's guilty of it. Then all of a sudden you want to say, well, it's not really wrong. It was okay. No, it's not. Whether it's my family, it's been true for my family or your family, and it'll be true for your family. God defines right and wrong for us. I may be a poor definition of it, but it doesn't change the definition. We may be collectively poor definitions always on our face in this room repenting, but that doesn't change what God has written in stone for the nations. It doesn't change it at all. But there's this idea that we're okay. And it moves that body from that slow burn of apathy. Because I think false teaching takes over when God's people really stop caring about what the Bible says. Long before they, they violate it egregiously, they really stop caring what the Bible really says about everything. So there's apathy. It moves that slow burn to this raging inferno of outright rebellion against the Bible. All of a sudden, we don't care what the Bible says. We couldn't care less. We don't care what the Bible says about, about who should lead it or how it should conduct itself or how its resources should be allocated. We don't care about those things. So now we don't care about anything. 
When the church's objective stops being a collective desire for unfettered truth, but begins to be driven by the satanic desire to suit their own needs for affirmation in sin, then false prophets and false teachers will abound. Here's the truth, folks. If we're healthy and we're doing what we're supposed to do and we're loving our Lord and we're seeking His truth, false prophets won't come. It's when we open the door. We stop caring and we stop studying and we stop devoting and we stop praying and we stop witnessing. That vacuum that's left comes in. The call is to surrender and submit to the easy yoke of Christ's teaching. The test is determined whether a message comes from God or not. That is the only objective used by the faithful church in evaluating teaching and evaluating preaching. Does this message come from God? Is it backed by Scripture, faithfully used? If it is, then listen to it. Take it in and live by it. If it's not rejected. The problem I've got with most churches is I think we... Two things. I think you'll lose more people in your church if you're loud. And I think you'll lose more people in your church if you're serious. I think the overwhelming majority of people that grace the pews of churches absolutely don't want to be yelled at, even if it's a topic that ought to be shouted from the rooftops. Because they think they're too good to be talked to that way. And I think a lot of people out there just simply don't want to hear the truth because they don't want it coming with a lot of passion. They don't want you, brother, to believe what you say. They're really more comfortable. They're really more comfortable with you believing the way they do. I'm going to tell you, we don't make that decision based on volume or velocity. But we always make it. We always decide, is the word true? If the word is true, folks, we believe it. We endorse it. And we will witness to it. Let's come together and pray.